of you. Hey, everyone. So many great people here today. And you do look good in pastel. Herb was right. It's true. So I'm so glad to see you. It's a beautiful morning outside. Great worship. Thank you, team. Appreciate you guys so much. Um, some of you, I know, got your stomachs filled at breakfast. I had some cheesecake for breakfast, Samara. Give it up. Some cheesecake for breakfast. And so I, I ate so many good things. So anyway, it is so nice to see all of you here today, and especially if you're a visitor. We just want to let you know that you're welcome here at Crestmont. And I hope we have the opportunity to get to know you more. I, I know some of you are probably visiting from out of town, but if you're local, I hope we have the opportunity to get to know you more as well. So we're going to be in Luke 23 today, which you can turn there on your phone or in the Bible that's in the pew in front of you. Um, but it's also going to be on the screen behind me, so you're going to be able to read it from there as well. So obviously, today we are singing about, celebrating, shouting about the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we worship not just some historical figure, we don't just follow the teachings of some historical figure, but that he is a living God who ever lives to bless his people. And that we have a future with him. So that's what we're singing about today. But as I was in preparation for this morning, I just felt led uh, to back it up a few days. It's a couple days before his resurrection at the lowest point in Jesus's life. As a matter of fact, where we're going to read in Luke 23 is at the moment that Jesus has been crucified. And then what happens after that? Um, we're going to be talking about two criminals who interacted with Jesus on the cross. Now listen, when Scripture presents to us uh, the beginning of the story of humanity, Scripture talks about two great enemies that humans face. The first is sin, and the second is Satan. Sin is our rebellion against God. And, and Scripture is clear, and we know it from our experience. We would believe it even if the Bible didn't tell us it that every single person has sinned, all of us in this room. And not just those of us in this room, but everyone in the world who's alive or who has ever lived has broken the law of God. It is the one great thing that we all have in common. Isn't that interesting? But the one thing that all of humanity has in common, one of the things, is that we have all broken the law of God. And then Satan, this adversary who can't help but kill and destroy and steal from people who God loves. This enemy who is always out to lie to us and to get us to believe lies. Well, God, in his love for us, was not content to leave us to face these adversaries of sin and Satan alone. As a matter of fact, he knew that we would never make it. That was a losing battle from the beginning. And so he hatched a rescue plan. And it was a plan that only he could have imagined he would come to earth. And this is who we believe Jesus to be, that he's 100% God and 100% man. God completely in a human body. Isn't that amazing? 100% God, 100% man. He was born to a poor family. You know, he was born in and grew up in a rough city, a rough neighborhood. He experienced the pain that we experience, you know, just the pains of life. He went through it too. The Bible even says, I think this is amazing because this is God who we're talking about, that he was tempted in every way that we were tempted. 
You know, in every way that we've been tempted to do something wrong, Jesus has experienced all of that temptation as well with the big difference that he never succumbed to it while we have again and again. We read in the historical accounts about the ministry of Jesus, how he preached a message of love, how he healed the sick, how people who were being oppressed by Satan found their freedom when they were in Jesus' presence. He proved that he was who he said he was, not just with words, but in his actions and in power. This is the Jesus that we worship. And yet, there was something about his ministry that put him at odds with both the political and religious, especially the religious, uh, powers that were there at that time. You know, the political and religious status quo couldn't handle his message, and so they began to plot to kill him. And eventually they were successful. They staged an illegal trial. It's amazing. If you think about it, Jesus knew what it was to be abused by the system. Isn't that incredible? He knew what it was to be hurt, not just by individuals, but by whole systems that were set against him. Unjustly condemned. And not just condemned to be executed, but condemned to be executed in the worst possible way at the time, and maybe in all of human history, to be crucified on a cross. The Roman Empire, who basically ruled the whole world at that time, had devised of this way of killing people. Not only to cause the worst criminals to die the most terrible slow death possible, but also to humiliate them in their final moments publicly. And the people who plotted against Jesus were successful at not just getting him condemned to be executed, but getting him condemned to be crucified. This is the worst possible way to die, the pain that Jesus went through. You know, it's interesting in Luke, where we're about to read in just a moment, as Jesus is in his last moments going to the cross, as he's being tortured, beat, and then eventually nailed to a cross, everybody has an opinion about what he's going through. And isn't this just what life is like? You're going through pain, you know, something that other people can see, and everybody has an opinion, right? Everybody has an opinion about what's happening. So people are watching Jesus suffer, and some folks think that he's suffering innocently. Some think he's getting what he deserves. Some people are just mocking him, just making fun of him in his final moments. But everyone has an opinion. But then again, you can't help but have an opinion about the cross, I mean, there's this man who had healed the sick, delivered people, drawn the outcasts of society to himself. Here's this man dying in the most terrible way. And when you look at his bloody body hanging on the cross, you can't stay neutral toward that, right? You're going to form some kind of opinion. Either you're going to think that he is who he says he is, or you're going to reject him. Or make fun of him or think that he's getting what he deserves. So here Jesus is in his final moments. Now scripture tells us that not only was he crucified that day, but there were actually two other condemned criminals who were killed with him on the same day in the same way on crosses. One on his left and one on his right. If you've ever seen those pictures around the Easter of three crosses, that's why there's three crosses. Because it wasn't just him that died that day. There was a criminal on his left and a criminal on his right. So that's what we're going to read about. You can stay seated while we read. It's going to be on the screen behind me. We're in Luke 23. I'm going to begin in verse 
32. And you're going to see that even these criminals have an opinion about Jesus. Even in their final moments, they have an opinion about what's happening to Jesus. And listen, we don't know much about these dudes. We don't know much about how they ended up, where they ended up. But we can guess some things. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst kind of criminals. And so I promise you, these guys are hardened criminals. Now, we don't know what they did, but they probably killed people or had people killed or even multiple people killed. They were probably treacherous and treasonous, and that's why they were condemned to die. We'll begin in verse 32. It says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there. What a place to be killed, huh? A place called the skull outside of the city of Jerusalem. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. Here's those opinions coming. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. These criminals may have had some things in common, their history, their criminal record, but there is a big difference between these two criminals, and here's how I'm saying it. One criminal does not receive, and the other criminal dares to believe. One criminal does not receive the love and salvation that is right there for him, and the other one dares to believe. Let's talk about this first criminal who doesn't receive. You know, pain is an interesting thing because it will surface what's really inside of you, right? Like, we can hold it together until we have a bad day, right? And then things go wrong, nothing's going right, and then all of a sudden we're saying things like, I don't know where that came from. I just, you know, I just said that, to, I just snapped at my kids. I don't know what happened, where that came from. That was inside of us all along, wasn't it? It's not like that just visited us. That's there. It's just that the pain reduces our ability to hide what's really going on inside. This means that pain can either be something that's really destructive in our lives or it can be something that's really productive because we can't hide anymore once we're in the midst of our pain. And so these three who are here on the cross, Jesus and these two criminals, in the midst of their pain, they cannot help that what's inside of them is going to come out. Now, with Jesus, this is incredible because all that comes out of him is love. Isn't it amazing? On the way to the cross, and he's getting, people are nailing his flesh to the cross. And what's coming out of him isn't just blood, but love. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. 
Jesus, not just by his suffering, but in the way he suffered, proved that he was the real deal. What was in him was real. When you pressed Jesus, when he got crushed, all that came out was love because all that was inside was love. That's how he treated the people around him, even as he went to the cross. But the other two criminals, you know, they're getting pressed too. And there's stuff coming outside of them. First of all, this criminal that doesn't receive, Look at this. First of all, he isn't able to see in his pain that love is right nearby. He's not able to see it. That there is love right next to him in the person of Jesus. And this is so often what pain does to us, right? It blinds us. It it stirs up all of these emotions in us, anger or anxiety. And those things aren't necessarily bad that has a way of stirring up all of this junk in us, and in the moment, we are blinded to what's right in front of us. You know, it's like, it's like you know how they, they tell you if you're on a plane or a boat, they tell you that if, if it starts sinking or it starts, I guess planes don't sink, but you know what I mean, it starts going down, you know, to the ground, that you're supposed to stay calm, you know? Who does that, you know? Who stays calm when the plane is going down? But they're telling you to stay calm because often there are tools for your salvation right nearby, right? I guess they work under the seat. Chaz, do they work? The Massey, you're not sure. Okay, Chaz is a pilot. So, so listen, there, there's tools for your salvation right nearby, but you have to stay clear-headed enough to see it. But this guy in the midst of his pain, he can't see that even right next to him, in, in his darkest moment, God is actually far closer to him than he would have thought. See, sometimes pain blinds our ability to see how close God really is. In the midst of it, God in the flesh is dying right next to him. And he can't see it. Secondly, I think this is really interesting. It's classic human behavior. He begins to look for somebody beneath him to ridicule. Now, of course, this is a joke because all three on the cross have been condemned to die, two justly, one unjustly. But they've all been given the same sentence. But here's this guy looking for someone that he perceives beneath him to criticize. What is that about human behavior? But we all do it, don't we? We criticize the people who have the same issues we do and pretend like we can't see it. We're in the same station of life. And so when we start hurting... Rather than face the stuff that's getting pressed out of us in our pain, it feels easier, doesn't it? It feels so much easier to begin to look for somebody or a group of people that we think is beneath us. So we'll reach for a neighborhood or a race or a culture or a socioeconomic class or just someone who commits a different version of sin than we do. You know, at least, well, I don't do that thing. At least I don't do what those people do. We begin to look for somebody who's beneath us. You know, the second criminal that I'm about to talk about, he points it out to the first criminal. Like, what right do you have? What right do you have to begin to criticize? Don't you see? We're all in the same place. But it's his pain that's causing him to want to hide. So he's looking for someone beneath him. And then last, I think this is the most profound thing about this first criminal, is that he sees no future for himself. Now you might think to yourself, well, of course he doesn't. He's about to die. Who sees a future for themselves? You know, when they're nailed to a cross, 
But I think this right here, probably more than anything else, his inability to see a future for himself, probably more than anything else, is what is causing this ugliness to come out of him. Listen, pain, listen to this, pain is always going to be assigned against your future. You hear me? It's always assigned against your sense of having a future. Pain loves to keep you in the present so that you begin to believe that you don't have a future, right? It will make you think that you only have today. Don't even dream about the future because there's no point in it. Or worse, it will make you not live in the present. Pain will make you live in the past. Come on, I feel like I'm saying something true. It will make you live in the past. You know what this is like. Pain will keep you 10, 20 years ago. Rehearsing the same regrets. Rehearsing the same letdowns. Rehearsing the same failures. Again and again and again. But what pain will always attempt to cut off is your sense of future. That's what pain wants to separate you from, is your sense of future. And listen, I don't care who you are, rich or poor, or if you've been in the church a long time, or this is your first day in the church, I don't care who you are. If hope gets sucked out of your heart, you will immediately act in the most destructive ways to yourself and to other people. And you see, when I'm talking about a future, I'm talking about hope. See, hope is future-oriented. Hope says, I have something coming that's not here yet. Hope believes things that we can't even see yet. Even though our circumstances are speaking to us something different, but pain always has as its assignment to cut off that sense of hope, to cut off the future. Now watch this. If one criminal doesn't receive, look at what the other one does. He dares to believe, even in his lowest moment. First of all, he dares to believe that love is actually right next to him. That love is nearby, right in the middle of his pain. He dares to believe it. He dares to believe that he hasn't been forgotten that actually salvation is right next to him, even though his life has brought him to this point. You know, above Jesus, it was written, King of Kings. You know, the, the people who crucified Jesus weren't putting there, there because they actually thought he was a king. I got to take my coat off. Is that okay? <laughs> I forgot Anthony was behind me for a second. There he is. <laughs> Listen, listen, when they put king of kings above him, they didn't actually think that he was a king. You understand that? They were ridiculing him. See, he was a king. Not a king like anybody expected, but he was a king. And there they were ridiculing him. But I think somehow, John, this guy looked, looked at that sign above Jesus' head, king of kings, and something clicked in him that that sign meant to ridicule Jesus was actually saying something true. Isn't that amazing? Oh, that God would give us that in the midst of our pain to be able to see how close God's love actually is. And then I love this opposite, completely opposite from what the first criminal does. This second criminal doesn't look for somebody beneath him. 
he is he dares to believe that he is in need of forgiveness himself. He says, look, I'm here because I got what was coming to me. I'm here because I broke the law. I'm here because I'm a sinner. Listen, this right here, daring to believe that you need forgiveness, is simultaneously the hardest thing for humans to actually believe, and it's also the most freeing thing once we believe it. I know some of your stories. I know some of you are in recovery from addiction. And you know that your salvation began when you were willing to admit that there was a problem, right? When you were willing to admit that there was an issue. When you stopped hiding behind those masks and those walls and you said, you know what, I'm in need of help. I need someone to help me. I need someone to forgive me. Listen, if you can't admit that you are in need of God's forgiveness, I'm not sure what God can give you. But if you can admit that you are in need, like every other human being that's ever lived, of the forgiveness of God, then God can give you everything he has. Isn't that incredible? God can give you everything. There's nothing that he will hold back from you if you can admit that. I long, don't you, to be in a community of people where we can let the masks down. You have it at Uncommon Grounds. A community where you can let the masks down. Increasingly, we're seeing it at our church. Friendships where we can let each other see what's really going on. Because if we don't have to hide in front of God, why do we got to hide in front of each other? <laughs> right? I mean, what, who, what are we doing? Who are we hiding from? There's nothing to hide from. If God loves us, there is absolutely nothing for us to hide from. So he believes that he needs forgiveness. And then, I love this. This criminal dares to believe that he has a future. This is crazy. I was talking about planes going down. I'm sorry to those of you who work in the airline industry. Listen, talking about planes going down, um, Nobody sitting next to each other on a plane as the plane is going down makes plans for their next dinner party, right? <laughs> nobody, while the plane is going down in flames, nobody says, oh, do you want to come over to dinner on Tuesday, right? Why? Because in the midst of the crisis of the pain, the future has been cut off. Listen, this criminal, you see it, the plane is going down fast, he is in his final moments. And yet, he is talking like he has a future. Do you hear that? Isn't that crazy? He's talking like he has a future. What gives him the right? Pierced onto a cross, this criminal. What gives him the right to make plans for the future? To talk like there is a future at all? Well, it's one word. Resurrection. Amen? One word. Resurrection. That's what gives him the right to begin to talk like there's a future again. Because listen, for all of us, the great hope killer is death. And it's something that we all face. It's something that is common to us all. We're going to face death. But if there is something that can give us hope beyond death, then we have reason to keep hoping in the midst of our pain. See, if there's something that gives us a future beyond the finality of death, 
which is our great enemy, then it means that we have reason to hope even in the present. Isn't that amazing? See, here's this guy in this terrible, horrible, awful pain. And he dares to believe that he still has a future. He says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now listen, I don't think this guy thinks he has a future just by himself. He doesn't. He's about to die. He thinks he has a future because he knows somehow that Jesus has a future. <laughs> See, somehow, I don't know all the details they knew, but somehow he knew that Jesus was going to breathe his final breath here and he wasn't going to stay dead. Somehow he knew that this wasn't the end for Jesus. And that if it's not the end for Jesus, it's not the end for us either. Amen? Even in the midst of our pain. That if death wasn't able to hold Jesus down, then death wasn't about to hold us down either. Amen? Yes. I love that. Because hope, once it becomes present in our lives increases our capacity to endure suffering and pain. Notice, for this guy, it didn't take it away. He still died in just a few moments. In just a few moments, he still died. But it increased his capacity for suffering. Listen, isn't it true that we are more likely to endure suffering if we know that there's a future attached to it, right? You know, I don't, even know, I don't think animals do this. I don't know, but humans do it. We are actually able to choose pain if we know that there's a future to it. Isn't that incredible? It's a capacity that God has given us as human beings, a capacity that Jesus had to endure pain in the present, even though, uh, you know, it's crushing in on us because we believe that there's a future. All right, listen, this is how I'm going to wrap up. The rapper in the 1990s, Tupac. I'm going to wrap up with Tupac. Listen, yes, <laughs> listen, controversial in his life and in his lyrics, but he was a soul that was looking for God. He was. Do you know anything about his music or his life? He was a soul that was looking for God. He wrote this song. Some of you may know it, some of you may not. I won't ask you to admit, those of you who know it. I wonder if heaven got a ghetto. I need something there. Let's try again. I wonder if heaven got a ghetto. Yes. <laughs> yes. What a <laughs> What's that about? Listen, what he was asking, if you look at the lyrics of that song, and some of you, you, know, you may know it, you may not, it doesn't matter. What he was asking, why he wrote a song called I Wonder If Heaven Got a Ghetto, is he was asking, is there a place in heaven for someone like me? Right? See, in that song, he talks about his childhood, the fatherlessness, the pain, the poverty that led him to the streets, that led him to do things he wasn't proud of. And then he asks the question, is there room with God for someone like me? That's what he's asking. Is there a place with God for somebody like me? Is there a place in God's family for someone who grew up in the hood? And if you look at the latter part of the song, I think what he's really asking is, if that's true, if God does have a place for him, then what does that mean for the present? Because knowing something about the future always lets us believe something about the present. 
the future changes our present reality. This criminal is asking the same question. He wrote a song, I wonder if heaven got a ghetto. He's asking, listen, he's asking, is there a place for somebody like me? He says to Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? What he's saying is, is there a place for me in the family, Jesus? A guy like me who has a criminal record, a guy like me who's being executed, a guy like me who's being humiliated, is there a place in the family? for somebody like me. And I love Jesus' answer. He says, yes, and today. Yes, and today. Yes, there is room in the family for somebody like this criminal. Have you ever wondered, is there a place for you with God? If the worship team can come forward. Have you ever wondered, is there a place for you with God? Have you ever wondered, is there a place for you in God's family? Listen, if Jesus' answer to this man on this day is yes and today, then it is also true that there's a place for everybody in this room. Isn't that amazing? See, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're from the ghetto or if you're from the trailer park, if you're from the city or the country. I don't care how you identify yourself. I don't care what you've done that you're ashamed of. I don't care how you've been hurt. I don't care what pain is in your past, what regrets you carry. Listen. The question, is there a place for you with God, is answered by Jesus here. Yes, and today. Yeah, let's put our hands together with Jesus. Listen, I love, I love this guy because he doesn't have time to clean himself up before he gets to heaven. Right? He doesn't have time to go to church and get it right. He doesn't have time to quit cussing. <laughs> He doesn't have time to quit his bad behaviors. Listen, he's about to die. But listen, salvation is always about what God does for us, not what we do for him. It's always about it. Because he doesn't have time to clean himself up. Listen, everywhere I go, people are asking, is there a place for me with God? Everywhere I go, people are asking. I've been on the phone with somebody uh, who's getting tested for HIV in the middle of the night. And they're asking, is there a place for me with God? In the midst of their mistakes, in the midst of the fear about the future, they're asking. And the answer is yes, there's a place for you with God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Whatever baggage you brought up to that point, there's a place for you with God. Listen, I've sat on the front steps of this church with a friend who confessed to me, some of the most awful, destructive stuff that he was doing to himself and to other people. We sat in silence for half an hour, her before he felt like he could talk to me. You know what that's like. Before he felt like he could talk to me and tell me. And why did it take him half an hour to open up? It took him half an hour to open up because he was afraid that the answer to the question, is there a place for me with God, would be no. See, he was afraid that he had gone too far, that he was too lost. But I sat there and I told him, friend, there is a place for you with God. Amazing. I've been on the phone with people. I found it helpful when people lose someone tragically. I have several friends who've lost people tragically to illness or even to accident or even murder. The other day I was on the phone with one of my friends who had lost someone to be murdered in the streets. I have found it helpful 
just to say, tell me about him. You know, I didn't know him, so tell me what he was like. Tell me about his laugh. Tell me about his personality. And this guy, in all of his pain, it feels like God isn't nearby, but what he's asking me is, is there a place for me with God? So that's what he wants to know. I sat with a homeless vet once who had been paralyzed from the legs down since he got back. And in the streets, in a wheelchair. And I sat with him. This is what he told me. He said, Joel, I have this recurring dream. I'm trying to get home. Let me just begin to worship. I have this recurring dream. I'm just trying to get home. I have the same dream every time. I'm just trying to get home, and I can never get home. See, even if he hadn't thought about it, what his heart is saying is, is there a place for me with God? In all of his regrets, in all of his pain, is there a place for me with God? The answer is yes. There's a place for him with God. If you could stand to your feet. Listen, I'm sure there's a ton of different reasons why people showed up here this morning. But I think God wants you to know that there's a place for you with him. Now listen, you will need to admit that you're in need of forgiveness. You will need to see that love is nearby. But I do want to dare you this morning. I want to dare you this morning to believe that you have a future because Jesus has a future. I want to dare you to believe it. In the midst of your pain, I want to dare you to believe that love is actually closer to you than what you imagined. In the midst of your sin, that love is actually closer to you than what you thought. I want to dare you to come out of hiding, like my friend did on the steps of the church, and to say, look, my life is a mess. I'm full of regrets. But there's a place for me with God. There's a place for me with God. Man, if we could just all close our eyes for one moment. I'm just wondering this morning, as if I'm sharing the word as we're exalting Jesus, if there's anybody here who has wondered, is there a place for someone like me in heaven? Is there a place for someone like me in Jesus' family? I want to tell you, you know, God's people, sometimes the church, we do a good job at representing Jesus' family, and sometimes we do a really bad job. You need to hear that. And so I want to encourage you, don't look at the church for the answer. You need to look to Jesus for the answer. Listen, I don't know if you've been hurt by religious people or not, if you have felt judged by them or not. I don't know. But we just looked in Scripture this morning where Jesus gave a clear answer to this criminal, that there was a place with him. I just want to speak this to some of you this morning, that God is not embarrassed to be your friend. Do you hear me? He's not embarrassed to be your friend. If you have ever felt embarrassed around church people, you, you need to know God is not embarrassed of you. He's willing to come in close to the sin.
He's willing to come in close to the areas where you need forgiveness. So this is just how I want to word it this morning. If this morning you are in a place, you might be a follower of Jesus or you might you know, feel, be feeling something stir in your heart for the first time. But this morning, if you want to dare to believe, to freshly dare to believe that love is nearby, if you want to dare to believe, if you want to dare to believe that you're in need of forgiveness, and if you want to dare to believe that there is such a thing as a future with Jesus that extends even beyond your pain, even beyond the pain of death. If that's you and you're feeling something fresh in your heart this morning and saying, yeah, I want to dare to believe, could you just raise your hand so I could see it? I just want to see what God is doing in the room. Amen. 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 I'm going to pray over those of you who have your hands raised. Lord, none of us believe unless your Holy Spirit does it. Unless your love convinces us to believe, we don't. And so, Lord, for those who raise their hands, I just pray, God, that what is stirring in them would increase even now in Jesus' name. Lord, just add fuel to that fire to keep believing that love is nearby, to believe that there is a God who forgives sin. Listen, if you know you need God's forgiveness, even just now in your heart, begin to ask him, or just under your breath, just begin to say, Lord, I know I need your forgiveness, and I believe you can give it. Ask him for it. He's willing to give it. Lord, thank you. And then, if you want to dare to believe that you have a future, because I'm just going to pray, and I just want you to join your heart with my words as I pray. Jesus, I believe that I have a future in you. I believe that my pain is not the final story. I believe that there is more than just today and more than just my past, that there is a future because Jesus rose from the grave, because he didn't stay dead. So Lord, we give you this morning our regrets, we give you this morning our sin. We give you our rebellion. Lord, we give you the ways that we have hurt others and the ways that others have hurt us. We just lay out all of our pain in front of you this morning, Jesus. And we decide to say and declare that we have a future in Jesus because he's not in a grave. We have a future in Jesus because he didn't stay on that cross. We have a future in Jesus because death could not hold him and the grave could not keep him. When we sing, because he lives, I can face what church? Tomorrow. We say that we have a future in Jesus because he came up out of that grave. Let's begin to sing. Lift them up.